Hello and welcome to The Thriller Zone. I'm your host, David Temple. The front row seat to the best thriller writers in the world. This is the place. So glad you decided to join us. And thank you for helping us to become one of the fastest growing podcasts in the world. I'm excited. Tell you what else I'm excited about. (laughs) This guy has been on my radar for five months. We have uh, tried to book a couple of times. He had a busy conflict. I had a busy conflict. But guess what? Eli Craner is here on the show. Don't know tough. It is gripping on so many levels. But hey, what the heck? Why should I be talking about that when we've got the superstar debut author Eli Craner right here on the Thriller Zone? So without any further ado, please welcome Eli. Good morning, man. How are you? (laughs) Good. Or good afternoon, I suppose, right? Oh, one o'clock over here in Arkansas. Hot dog. I see a little neighbor there in your face. Yeah, there's a feral cat running around, so <laughs> liable to liable to be the star of the show. <laughs> that is a first to have a, a cat right there front and center. That's right, man. And there's a dog down down here beside me. She's a lot more she's a lot more tame. Yeah. I'm down in the basement. Our basement's like an unfinished. Uh, so I, I control all the, it's animal kingdom down here with me too. We, we all shed a whole lot more than what my, my wife likes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is a beautiful breed. Uh, I thought, uh, did Eli uh, choose the dog because he and uh, they have the exact same color of beard or? Uh... <laughs> yeah. We got the blue eyes and the reddish hair. Of, yeah, we're, we're yeah. pretty blue. You know, it's so funny when I first saw your photograph because that's such an imposing, handsome beard, and I'm I have a little bit of beard jealousy because I can't grow that kind of action. And I was like, then I saw a photograph of you with hair, and I was like, I don't even know who that guy is, but this is. Oh, wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's I had yeah I had hair up until about five years ago, so I have a lot I've hair envy going there, Dave, because that looks like a nice nice head of hair you're rocking there. So it, it, all, it, it all goes it all goes around. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. I can I can bang out a little mustache. I can get a goatee going, but that's baby face right there, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Well, welcome to the Thriller Zone. This is a very, very big honor. Thanks, man. Big honor here, too. Big fan. Thank you. Thank you. That's very nice to say. Very nice. I like getting to know my writers, so we're going we're gonna to dr- drill into this. And the fact that this came out in March and I'm just now getting to it, th- I do not think that it was not for interest. I think you were just so friggin' busy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we tried a couple of times. Yeah, we both had things, so. I'm stoked that it worked out. Well, I have to admit, Eli, uh, being from the South myself, not as deep South as you, North Carolina. Oh, yeah, yeah. It all counts. I love to see it when fellow Southerners get the attention for their work. And uh, you have certainly managed to do that. Yeah, well, I appreciate it. I didn't know know you had a North Carolina connection there. I I didn't know. I was born in Winston-Salem. Yep. And uh, uh, spent uh, before I moved up to New York to, with my lovely bride, I uh, was living in Charlotte, North Carolina. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I'd never been to North Carolina. Um, 
And then when Don't Know Tough came out, we had a stop in like Asheville. Oh, yeah. Um, Farrington Village, which I'm not really sure what town it was in. There's a bookstore there um, that was so cool. But we had a whole bunch of, of North Carolina, Greensboro. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it was I loved North Carolina. Yeah, I do miss it. My uh, part of my my sister's in uh, Marion, which is just outside of Asheville. My brother's in Hendersonville, which is right next door to Asheville. Yeah. Got another sister in Charlotte. And uh, yeah, we're out in San Diego now, which <laughs> pretty nice, dude. Yeah, well, it's like 102 is the high here today with like 100 percent humidity. So I definitely San Diego sounds good. I do. We Arkansas, we do have this to boast. So I'll give you the view out of the office window here. Oh my goodness, dude! It's hot, but the lake's nice. So. Oh, I would be spending a whole lot of time near that. Yeah, we just moved out here like a year ago, and it has made the right the production has seemed to go down a little bit because I just uh, I, I I there's a lot of more more fun things waiting out there now than back in the neighborhood. <laughs> yeah. And is that the writing desk right there? Yeah. Yeah. So this is, this is where the magic happens. Man, look at that magic uh, place. Yeah. I'm a big office guy. Um, let me see if I can get this. Oh, there you and go. It's all just unfinished, you know, beams and studs. So I have, complete freedom from the wifey to uh, <laughs> do all the crazy stuff that, you know, I want to do. Good. Well, I love the fact that you got a dartboard right off to the side so that you can just kind of. Man, that dartboard plays into the process. I, it, I only throw six darts a day and I, I always just go for the bullseye. And it's, it's just something like if I'm waiting to hear back on a, you know, an email or, uh, or I'm trying to break a story or whatever. Like I always kind of just make this gamble where it's like, if I hit the bullseye today, you know, then it, then something good is coming, you know, when I start the day's session, <laughs> that's it. But just six throws and see what the fates allow. I like that. And also you got this, you know, do you have that point where you go like, okay, it's been a tough day and it's really hot. If I hit a bullseye in six, then I get a cold beverage and I get to put a, but a tube out on the lake and just float for a while. Yeah. We got a pontoon. They have a dock out there. So we got a pontoon boat that's just sitting there um, in the water always. So yeah, that whether I hit the bullseye or not, that, that time's coming uh, regardless. <laughs> nicely done and uh now i'm trying to think i don't know exactly i'm gonna pull it up because i'm curious i'm that guy i'm the guy who wants to always see so what's the town so i can find that lake yeah we're in london arkansas um which is right outside of russellville is the big town that's where my wife and i are both from and it's lake dardanelle so like that mountain that you saw over there is called mount nebo Right across is Yale County and Dardanelle. So fans of True Grit, that's Maddie Ross's hometown. Um, and they just have a newly, new whole tourist thing going, and it's called True Grit Trail. And, like, we're just overlooking it. Where And it's, like, the trail that Maddie followed as she came down into Fort Smith. And, like, they have the Bassmasters Classic here once a year. Um, 
So yeah, it's just a reservoir of the Arkansas River. Nice. Well, here's something that'll be uh, fun for you. I used to be the voice of Na- uh, Speed Channel on NASCAR. So a part of our gig was a lot of the drivers were bass fishing fans. And so we, we'd hang out at Bass Pro Shop and all those guys would show their toys. And Well, I'd love to start off with this. Uh, as I went to your website, <clears throat> and this is such great product placement on your part, uh, I see where Ace Atkins, who was on the show, delightful guy, says you're the, a new voice of the South to watch. Now tell me, I can I can only imagine, but I want to hear it from your mouth. What did that make you feel coming from that legend? Yeah, so I've known Ace. I graduated college in 2010, and I played quarterback uh, at our my university in Arkansas, Washington Baptist University. And when I graduated, I had all my sights set on going and getting an MFA. I was an English lit major, uh, but then I got a call to go play football in Sweden. And I played a season overseas. And before I did that, I got to go to this thing called the Yachna Patafa Writers Conference. And it's just for startup writers, you know, like a workshop. And Ace was there. And we had that connection of former college football players, uh, writers, crime writers. I went to Sweden. I coached high school football. Six years went by, you know, and I and I didn't write much. I didn't do anything. You know, I was too busy coaching and playing. And then I got out of coaching. And the first person that I thought, like when I decided I'm going to try and really go at this thing and, and be a novelist was Ace. And I just cold emailed him, you know, like six years later. And that dude, I mean, it just like we just picked right back up. And so from that point on, I mean, I was writing and asking Ace for all. So Ace has kind of like been there from the start. So Don't Know Tough had a really long, crazy story of getting published. And Ace was kind enough to read the, the book before, when it was just a Word document. And he offered that all the way back then, which really made it nice for going out to agents and, you know, to have have that at the top. So yeah, Ace has a, has a really special place in, in my heart. Wow. So tell me about that process, because you just used the phrase that uh, so many people, especially listeners of the show, say, uh, oh, man, uh, w- was yours 200 rejections? Did I hear that? Yeah, it was over 200. Um, and that's just the ones that, you know, responded a lot. <laughs> a lot of the ones, you know, will just you never hear anything back. But it was it was like a three. It was like there were like three cycles. Like I wrote the book first and queried about a hundred agents and I ended up getting one uh, within like the first year of querying and don't know tough was the fourth manuscript that I finished. Um, and I queried each one of the first three books about a hundred times, about a hundred agents was what I'd go through. Um, and those three books need to be burnt and deleted. (laughs) And like, they were, they were the learning books, you know, they were not, I had this, this really great, and I, I've tried to go back and find it. And I, I don't know if I've been able to find it, but somewhere I heard somebody say that Ray Bradbury said that you're not a writer until you've written a million words, like a million words. Of yes. Words. Yeah. And I, I like the old coach in me and the old quarterback in me, like took that as like, 
like a workout regimen, you know, like it was like the reps I had to complete, you know, before I was ready to go pro. So I just kept a little moleskin journal and kept up with the, with the words. And I was writing a lot of short stories too. And, um, and don't know tough. It was, it started off as a short story, uh, that won the Greensboro review North Carolina, uh, literary magazine. It won their like fiction prize that year. And that was the short story. And so I had the agent, he lasted like a year. He helped get the book, you know, into a better, more marketable shape. I wasn't really aiming for crime fiction. I was more Southern fiction, you know, literary, Larry Brown, Flannery O'Connor, that sort of, you know, stuff that I was cutting my teeth on. He got out of the picture. I queried another 200 agents. This was all like right in the like right in the winter, like December, January of 2020. Oh, yeah. And at this point I had Ace's blurb. I had William Boyle, who's another really good pal oh, of mine, yeah. a guy who's an ace hooked me up with him and he had also blurbed it. So I ended up getting like 30 full manuscript requests. Everybody wanted to read it this time. And then March of 2020 came along and New York city was, you know, drowning in COVID and the world, nobody knew what was about to happen. And I mean, it was like in within one week, like all 30 of those agents, like basically sent the same thing. Like Eli, I'm so sorry, but we don't even know what's going to happen to the publishing business. New York city is up in arms. So we are just, we don't have the broad, like the bandwidth to, to take on a debut novelist. Like I just, you know, and it was just like one after another. Wow. So I was just about done with that book. I just thought, okay. And I'd always thought that don't know tough had with my experience with football. I haven't, I don't always write about football, but you know, that was the book that I thought really had my heart blood, you know, like a good one that would start me off. It was unique. It was a world that I knew. And I just about given up on it. And then I get an email from William Boyle, Bill Boyle. And he's found this contest that Soho's hosting that you don't have to have an agent and what it, the Peter Lovesey first crime novel. And it was one of those things like with every query I ever sent out, you know, I would like watch the inbox, like look, I'd, I'd find the agents, like how long it took most of them to respond. There's like databases for that. Yeah. And, um, and I sent that submission into Soho and never thought about it again. Like, I like didn't ever even think. And then like six months later, I was on to something else. And Juliet Grames, my now editor and just my literary hero, uh, calls. And and that was that was <sighs> it. It's a break. Dude, that, you know what that tells me about you is a relentless tenacity to not quit. Yeah. And part of that is probably your upbringing. Part of that is probably your work ethic of football to train, 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 never give up, keep trying to perfect the the throw, etc. And that's such a great story for people who go, Man, I've got I got five rejections this week. I am so bummed. Oh, five? Really? Huh. <laughs> Let's roll 200 and see how you feel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I think you're right. I mean, don't it, it wasn't 
it was there was a lot like you ask my wife you know and, and she'll tell you you know like how painful that was but it was always the way i coped with it was like if i got a rejection i would send out five more submissions like it was so it was like that was how i coped it was like if i if if i took a step back yeah you know you know i just send them out and there's so much like tiptoeing and stuff that goes around in that querying trenches, you know, like so many authors worry about upsetting an agent or, you know, pushing them too hard or sending out. And man, if, if listeners of this show are in that boat, like my, my advice on this end of it now is just like the shotgun method is your best bet. Like get it out, get it out as much as you can. Don't worry about up like they're in it to make money. And yeah. if they think your book is going to make them money and you're persistent about getting it in front of their face, then there's no problem there. You know, yeah. like I do know the slush pile is a real thing. And I yeah. do know that a lot of those emails never make it through. So doing whatever you can, you know, to get it within reason and being, you know, having having some some couth about you, you know, to make sure that you're, you're doing it without being crazy, but, but just really, you're right. I know so many authors who've got good books, people that I've, I've read manuscripts for and, but yeah, they might've queried 20 total agents and, and that's it. And there's yeah. a lot of good books that take a lot more than that to go. And, you know, I get the fact that it's daunting. Everything's daunting. I mean, for crying out loud, if you want to compete at the highest level, you you either say to yourself out of the gate, like, I wanted to be in radio since I was in junior high school. So I said to myself, look, <clears throat> I know the market's tough. I know it's a tough hill to climb, but I don't I can't imagine doing anything else. And so I just put my head down and kept cranking. And, you know, I'll, I'll, quick story. I remember the very first time I went into the radio station, but I was a punk. And I asked the guy, can I get a gig? And he's like, well, where have you worked? And I'm like, well, I haven't. Well, you can't, I can't give you a job if you don't have any experience. And I said, smart ass that I was, how can I get any experience if you don't give me a job? Right. Yeah, son, I've heard that before. Uh, come back another day. I went back the next day, said the same thing. Went back the next day, said the same thing. And on the third try, I said, tell you what, give me the worst show you possibly got. Nobody wants it. Give me that one. And if I don't, if, if I don't make it happen, you don't even have to pay me. I'll walk away. I'll get out of your hair. And he's like, okay. And that's launched the career. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, that's it. That is it. Exactly. Yeah. And, that's, and I don't know, for some reason there's writing isn't always viewed that way. You know, not only like the Bradbury million words, you know, you write that first short story. A lot of authors that I talk to or people I've come across they think that's the story, you know, that the best thing they'll ever write, you know, and yeah. I think Dolly Parton was, you know, she's famous for writing like one song a day, multiple songs in a day, you know, so it's not like this idea. And I think writing's the same way. It's not like this idea that you're going to write something perfect, but if you write enough, you know, something perfect might come through. Yeah. And I'm going to use the same sports analogy. Do you by the chance play golf? I, I don't. I play disc golf. You know, okay. But, yeah, 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 yeah. Very familiar with it. Okay. Well, did you, when you picked up that first disc and went for that chain, did you uh, hit it the very first time? That's right. Yeah. You probably yeah. didn't. Yeah. Did you hit it the first 10 times? Probably didn't. Well, with your arm, you probably got closer than your average bear. 
But my point being, how do you expect, like, how do I expect to get a little white ball right down the middle of the fairway at uh, two, 300 yards if I don't practice? It's the same thing. And I, I don't mean to oversimplify, but where does anybody get the thought that, well, I got it. It's perfect out of the gate, dude. I don't have to edit this thing. It's ready to roll. That, well, that's, that's pretty insane. Yeah. You got to date a lot of gals before you find the right one. Yeah. Yeah. No, the best advice that I think I like once I look back and boil it down, I would say like when you finish a manuscript and you get it cleaned up, you know, and you've had people you trust read it and give you some thoughts on it. I would say query a minimum of 100 agents and and do that in batches. So do like 25 at a time. Hear back. See if it's you know, if they're all having the same problem. Always keep writing. You know, that was one of the best things that when Don't Know Tough came along, I had, um, and we were doing the first deal with Soho, you know, I had, we had five uh, more finished manuscripts to choose from, like for what to do next and what to how to, so I mean, like my next book comes out in April, you know, just right out of almost under a year, you know, following it. And, and is I haven't been having to hustle and trying to figure out what am I going to write, you know, to get right. a next book? Because that was it. Even as I was querying, you know, a daily regimen of words and just write and query, write and query. Yeah. Yeah. You ever heard the phrase, hope is not a strategy? David Temple here for AuthorBytes.com. You know, more than 2 million books are published every single year. An AuthorBytes site can help you rise above the noise. That's right. If you've ever asked yourself, David, I've heard you talk about authorbytes.com. Why should I choose them? I got three reasons for you. Boost your visibility. Their latest generation technology has even more great tools for boosting your brand and your books. Number two, latest tech enhancements. AuthorBytes' industry-leading solutions empower you with the tools you need to be successful. And number three, it's powered by WordPress. AuthorBytes sites are built on WordPress, the industry leader in content management software, and they've been around forever. All right, I'm going to add a fourth. Security. 24-7, no holds barred, don't have to worry about it. Security. That's why when you're ready to put your best foot forward as a writer and you want a rock-solid website that says, I'm here, I'm ready to play, you want to go to authorbytes.com. P.S. Sign up today for a one-year contract and get the first three months free. That's right. Go to authorbytes.com, fill in the form at the bottom of the page, put in the code THETHRILLERZONE, and you'll get the first three months free with a one-year contract. Authorbytes.com. Hi, this is Eli. Welcome to the Thriller Zone. I'm with David and we're discussing Don't Know Tough. Your favorite authors, the Thriller Zone. And now back to the show. Do you, are you talking about the next book yet? And I, I'm not taking away from this book, but are yeah. you? Yeah, yeah. It's called Ozark Dogs and it's available for pre-order. Um, there's a really love the cover. It's uh it's got, it was a, it was a case that happened right here in, in our backyard back in 2017. And long story short, there was a guy owner of a local junkyard here in town who was getting stolen from like petty theft, um, hubcaps, stereo parts for like the course of a year. And he notified the authorities for a year, you know, for the whole year, they could never catch him. And one night, a stormy night in September, he set up a deer stand 
he took an AR-15. He put out hubcaps and stereo parts out in the middle of uh, this this junkyard. And when the two boys came in, he shot them both in the back with a with his AR-15 and killed them. And it was this huge deal. He was a a, um, a pretty prominent member of our of our town. You know, like he. It wasn't just some guy out living on his junkyard. And what it had did was it split our town right down the middle because half of the people thought, well, yeah, you know, if these boys have been stealing from me for a whole year uh, and nobody's going to do anything, and then, you know, that's what I would do. And then the other half was like, no, like that's completely against the law, like that he killed them in cold blood. He shot him in the black back. It, there were all sorts of crazy things that came after the case. Like, I mean, he left his cameras on, his security cameras, like while he walked across the yard. Uh, but then as the case wore on and, and I don't know, you know, like if he thought that he was within his rights, you know, they're on his property. I, I don't know. Things have gotten muddy since then. He's filed appeals. You know, he still alleges that he's innocent. Uh, so that story is the backdrop. It all completely... Um, uh, it inspired, you know, this really fictional take that I, I do about two families in our Ozark region of Arkansas that are, gotcha. you know, that are kind of warring with that in their background. So not uh, taking the documentary twist angle, but more just using that as the impetus for the idea. Yeah. And I write yeah. an author's note at the end. So it'd be like kind of watching a movie inspired by true events and then right. you get the true events section, you know, at the end. So yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a hot one because that's still a big deal. I mean, that's five years later now. Uh, and the man was convicted of two uh, life sentences without parole. Oof. So it's been a, it's been a, it, it's a, it's a, a big deal around here. Wow. Well, so as to not take away from that, let's go back to Don't Know Tough yeah. and and tell me how this came about. Now, there's a whole, it feels like there's a whole lot of you in here um, because of the football, quarterback, et cetera. But tell me how this came about. I'd love to hear that story. Yeah. So Don't Know Tough is about Billy Lowe and he's a running back for the Denton Pirates high school football team. Um, he's got a volatile, explosively troubled home life. And it's about his new football coach who's in from California, uh, Trent Powers. And Trent is evangelical. He's really, you know, there to, to, to really make a difference in these kids' lives. And then there's a murder that threatens to really tear their team, Billy's life, Trent's life, all of it apart, you know, right there in this small Arkansas town. The idea for me came my last year of coaching. So I'd been a head football coach two years previous at the age of 26, wow. which is way too young. And being a head coach in Arkansas is like being a sheriff and a mayor and a youth pastor all combined like into one strange job title. And I wasn't ready for it. You know, I just, I, I got the job because of my playing career. The team was bad, but I was like, you said you were, you know, when you went on your first radio deal, I was like, give me whatever team. You know, I'm ready to be the boss. I'm ready to do this. Yeah. And it just tore me up from the inside out. It mm. just, um, we couldn't win, which was the first time, you know, I'd come up against that. Like they had won like one game in the last three years uh, when I took over and we won one game in the two years that I was there. And then on top of that, poverty was just, it was it, it'll, right from where I'm sitting in this town, about 20, 20 miles up the road. And a lot of those first thoughts, it was what it was, was it was this 
in our culture, you know, high school football, a coach is there to be a mentor and to teach, you know, life lessons. They're an educator, you know, but in a Southern culture or any very football heavily culture, you're also there to win. And if you don't win, you're going to lose your job, you know? Yep. So I was constantly an old English major, you know, uh, there's a lot of probably better football coaches who weren't thinking about all this shit while I was right. You know, where I was constantly torn between, you know, am I doing what's best for the kids? Am I just trying to win? And so, you know, Billy Lowe's the main character and Billy Lowe's a conglomeration of so many kids. You know, I, I coached football for five years was a head coach for those two years. And my last year of coaching, I'd gotten out of being the head coach, went to work for a guy who had coached me as kind of like a safe haven. And I was coaching the offensive line, which I knew nothing about. Um, and I had more time. And so I used to write like in our coach's office. I used to write like on lunch breaks at school. And I had a lunch break that tied into a prep period. And that line, still feel the burn on my neck, told coach it was a ringworm this morning when he picked me up. That just kind of came, this first person voice. And I wrote that whole first chapter. And during the lunch break tied to the prep period. And it was just one of those things. It's been the strangest thing because nothing I've ever written since then has really been like this. But that chapter was a short story that has basically remained almost exactly as I wrote it, wow. you know, through all the different edits and, and people who've read it. And so, yeah, it, it won the contest for the Greensboro review. I remember thinking like, okay, this one's got some legs. And then from there, you know, all the, all the other parts of the book are, are just Arkansas, what I know around here. And, and it does this strange thing where it switches from first to third person narration. That was just a, a trick I thought that would help, help ease the, the ferocity of Billy's voice and, and kind of how raw he is. Well, and this is what got my attention. I think I saw your video first and I don't, I, it, it's, it's either on, well, it's on YouTube. So it was either on one of your social channels and you're sitting in a classroom and you start off by reading that story. And then you turn to the camera and tell the story that you just did. And for whatever reason, be, well, because you're a great storyteller and you're engaging, I sat there and I was glued to it. I couldn't stop watching. And, and, and it was the voice of that character. So then when I picked up the book and I started reading it, I felt like I'd already kind of gotten to know you a little bit, you and this character. But it was that voice of that character that made it so. And it's a little difficult to read it first if you haven't grown up in the South. But once you get into the rhythm, you you understand it. And I'm like, wow, it's just so powerful. So and and then here's the other great thing, uh, Eli, is when I was listening to you, I'm like, God, dang, that guy's got a good voice and he's, he's reading the character. Man, I'd be wonder if he ever thought about doing an audio book. And then I go <laughs> then I go research and Eli did his own audio book, folks. Yeah, thanks, Dave, because that was a that was a that was a trip in and of itself. It was a you know, the the people doing the audio book didn't really want me to do it um, at first. Because, you know, a lot of I'm sure some authors want to do it. And so I had to send in like samples of myself reading. Sure. And the voice I do for Billy is is not my voice, but I, that was what I thought, you know, would hook them. So I sent this, you know, sample of me reading Billy. And it was so funny because I think what they thought was like that was me, you know, yeah. like they thought and they were like, 
Um, so I ended up having to send in some of the third person. And then finally they were like, yeah. And, and I was really adamant about doing that because I've never quite read Billy's voice. Like I've never, I've never quite read Billy's voice in literature. It's this strange mixture of dialects. The Arkansas is in this really kind of strange cross section. You get the Ozarks in like the Northwest section. So think Daniel Woodrell, the TV series Ozark, you get that kind of country. And, and then the, the Southeast, if you cut it diagonally, it's just like a square, is like Memphis and it's more Delta and it's this whole kind of that sort of South. So I really, the, the, the reason I wanted to do the audio book was because I, I just was going to flip shit if some <laughs> dude from Texas was trying to read, you know, Billy's voice and we got some Texas Ranger, you know, doing Billy's this certain dialect that I was really wanting. But even the recording, which I know you'll know a lot about, I did it at this small studio in Memphis uh, called Electrophonic. Uh-huh. And it was, they had recorded like soundtrack for Black Snake Moan there, Hustle and Flow. The guy, uh, the guy was, was great, but, but the setup was old school. Like we were on, I was on a, like a kitchen chair with like a bar stool and my laptop in front of it, you know, with like the mic. And every time I moved, like if the chair would creak or it, and, and we were using, you know, really like retro, like condenser mic, like really cool stuff. Yeah. Um, but it was like a three day, took us three days and like 28 hours to get eight recorded hours. So 28 studio hours, you know, to get eight recorded. I know that world well, and it's, uh, it is it is not as easy as everybody thinks it is, is it? No, 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 no. And I, I, everybody, like, you think you'll do it again? I'm like, yeah. I mean, like, you know, I, I enjoy it. Yeah. Reading, reading aloud is a big part of my process. And this is a, I've said this before in other interviews, but it's every night. So like if I'm writing, I like to write longhand and I get whatever I've got, you know, done during the day that I can. I usually work early in the mornings. And then when I get the kids down to bed and, and my wife and I, you know, split up, I'll come back down the office and I'll get it all in the computer. And my secret weapon is I call my mom. And when I call my mom, I read her oh. whatever I've written that day. And this works well for two things. It works well because you hear it, you know, helps to, to proof it. And, and that's great, you know, get ideas about the next day when I come in the office the next morning. But what's really the secret is my mom, because my mom has never read or heard anything by Eli Craner that isn't the best thing in the world ever. <laughs> yeah. So, so I go to bed every night thinking like, yes, you know, like I, that was a great day. And then in the morning I wake up still juiced off of mama's love and I go right back into it. You're making me miss my mama. She, she passed away, uh, four years ago, uh, last week. And, uh, she was my best friend and she, that's where I got my reading from. She would read a book a day as long as I could remember. Um, I mean, she started as a child, a child, she would go to the library and get two sacks of books and come home for the week and read them. And so I grew up around that. I'm like, Ma, how do you do that? She goes, well, I just love words and I love story and, you know, and a book a day. My point is just the, to have that sounding board and, you know, you and I both share. And I used to be ashamed of this early on, but with time, I, I go, I, 
I'm a mama's boy and I'm proud of it, motherfucker. Um, Cause there's nothing like a mama's love period. Let's start there. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Can we do no wrong? Kind of, especially being the, you know, the star child <laughs> as a, <laughs> anyway, I love that. Um, and I love the fact, I love the fact you did the audio book. Yeah, man. Well, and it was, you know, with, with my, and I am, and then I'm real careful about letting anybody else see it. Like, I won't let anybody else, agent, not my wife, especially not my wife. My wife is a great, <laughs> she's a great first reader, but like she's hard, you know, so I don't need anything but love and praise, you know, right there at the beginning. So, yeah. So, yeah. For anybody listening, try calling your mom. See if, she, <laughs> see if she's up for it. I would love to call my mom. Uh, I remember the first few books. My very first book was a, a faith-based book because I grew up as a, my dad was a preacher. <clears throat> so she loved that book. But when I got into um, some of my dark detectives and uh, some darker stuff that I've written, she's like, now, son, I don't like that too much. I don't. You can go right back to that Jesus stuff. And I sure would like that better. You know, <laughs> what did she read? Did she have favorite authors or she? Uh, just about anything. She was, uh, she, she's the one who turned me on to mystery. So anything mystery. And I think she introduced me to Sue Grafton. So I got onto that boat, you know, the, uh, the alphabet series. I just always say this when I get a chance, cause Kelly Garrett, author of like a sister, she just, every time you hear her talk about books, she talks about B is for burglar and how that is like the quintessential, like how to pull a twist. How to, you know, so she, she's right there with your mom on the Sue, Sue yeah. graph. I'm going to go back and reread that because of that very comment. The, the nice thing I like about Sue Grafton and is just to go down this because she's no longer with us is the fact that she told, she, she, it was a slice of life story, kind of a slice, slice of life PI in a small town, Santa Barbara ish. And, but it was just a good, solid storytelling. And it was, it was smart enough that made you had to work for it, but it wasn't too over the top and it wasn't full of switchbacks and turns and, you know, all that. But it is amazing that which you begin reading, you tend to follow along with that. Here's one for you, Jeffrey Deaver. Now you want to talk about a guy who can do a switchback that'll, that'll break your neck. And you're you're sure you got it nailed, and you're like, what, what? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But only because you mentioned this, one of my favorite books. Oh my god, that guy, that guy for me, line by line writing, is Bill Boyle is the king. This was one of the most powerful. I mean, talking about a book that grabs you for them from the first sentence and then always makes you wonder what's percolating right underneath the surface. Have you read a friend is a gift you give yourself? No. Dude, put that one on before you re reread B is for burglar. It's about two, like in their 60s, 70s retired porn stars to <laughs> win in like, and they get caught up in some deal where the, the like, old mafioso mob bosses are after them. So it's kind of like a road novel with like this Elmore Leonard kind of dark humor. Uh, it's, it's my favorite bill. Um, it's got this great line about Paul Newman's beard and the smell of it. Um, so yeah, Bill's a man. 
Oh, that just takes my head everywhere. Okay, a friend is a gift you give yourself. I'm going to get on that one. I love it. I love it. Um, so you guys are still, you guys are pals and in touch and he, talking about an influence. And you know what I love about some of you guys, all the, uh, the, you guys share the athleticism and the love for words and storytelling. That's a great combo bo- a bond to have in it. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. I do a thing with uh, crime reads called Shop Talk. And so that's been really cool. It's like a column where I just talk about craft and we look at offices. And, and you know, another one that really has that athletic is Laura Lippman. She was, she was right there in that same kind of boat, you know, about the, the I, she wasn't like an athlete or anything, but very into working out, very into like rowing um, and how it all goes together for writing, you know, that they walking to get ideas or exercising, you know, to, to get through a, a, a pause moment, you know, in writing. I, I do the same thing. I take a long walk. We're about one mile from the beach. So I either get down there on low tide and walk as far as I can turn around. Cause that, that is the best way to work kinks yeah. out because you, you got a little negative ion with the air and you got, uh, your mind is just free to roam. Here's something I'm, uh, I was asking myself, scratching my head when I uh, was talking, uh, getting ready for you. And that is, um, I, I got to ask Eli, what's harder to crack? Playing football, teaching high school kids, or the novel writing market? Yeah. I'm going to say the novel writing market, man, of all those. And it's just because it's so subjective. And for a dude in the middle of nowhere, Arkansas, like that whole like New York City literary landscape seems, you know, like another planet. Uh, now, don't get me wrong. And I teach I teach um, ALE English. So those are kids that are like 10th through 12th grade that are alternative learning you know, so either behavioral issues or anxiety issues. So small classes with really intense kids. Um, and then, yeah, football, football's football. I think we all, yeah. I mean, these days, everybody knows what's, what's up with that. But yeah, man, that was the deal with, with the novel writing market was just finding somebody who'd listen. <laughs> and talking about competition, Eli, that's the one thing I could see why people would get, just overly intimidated as i have said on the show before all you've got to do is walk into a barnes and noble uh and look at the vast array of books fighting tooth and nail for your comp for your attention and i think i i i love bookstores especially warwick's which is one here in la jolla and it, it there's something about that environment but you have to go in there with the mindset of joy and pleasure and learning while not being intimidated by the competition. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And back on Bill Boyle, he he had this great quote, or he's told me this line before, and it's, you know, it was like advice for like a young author. And it was, don't get bitter. And that has stuck with me and resonated at different times, at, you know, as I was at all different sorts of times. It's, it's a, I should, I should tape it to my wall, you know, because as an author, you cannot, you cannot view it as competition or you'll drive yourself crazy. Right. Um, 
And I look to guys like Ace and Bill and Michael Corita and James Kestrel. There's a lot of these guys, S.A. Cosby, that, I mean, in the last year have really kind of – they've helped me in so many ways that that were just – just blew my socks off. And they're the ones that, that show me, you know, it ain't a competition. Like, what's good for you is good for me. And it's good for everybody out there reading and, and buying books. Um, so, yeah, that's that's something that an old quarterback, an old coach has to constantly remind himself of. And you know what? That's really good advice. And it just remi- and, and I've learned this with this podcast now a year old is that there is, you know, nobody. Well, I can't talk to Dave about that because he's going to get my secret. And it's uh, this is a competition. Everyone is super friendly. Everyone is absolutely ready to help. So I love that. And and you you just teed me up to my next question, which is as we get ready to wrap is, um, and I ask all my authors this question because it's become the classic and it's your best piece of advice. And you can't still steal bills. Uh, what would you give to up and coming writers? And matter of fact, because so many up and coming writers listen to the show, I'd also like to be curious to see if the advice would be similar to that, which you give your students, but let's start with your best piece of writing advice. All right. And this is specifically for people aspiring to be novelists and sell books. Yes, sir. All right. It's a formula, write a million words. Once you've written a million words, write an 80 to 90,000 word manuscript. Send that manuscript off to five people you trust. Let them catch the typos, clean it all up. If they've got some big plot thing that you think makes sense and the majority of them say it, then fix that plot thing. Get it as clean as you can send it and send that off to 100 agents. While those agents are waiting to respond, start the process over again. (laughs) That is so good, dude. That is so good. And it's so real and it's so on the money. Is that the same? How about your kids? When you, when because the, these kids in school, especially with the, the special situation that you're talking about, I would love to hear how you get them motivated, especially when you find someone that you know has that little spark that they don't even know they have yet, or they don't have the confidence to know they have yet. What do you say to them? With kids these days, and this was the same in coaching, like back even when I was playing, which I I graduated high school in 2006, we were still, or at least the guys I played with, we were still of this mind of like, if coach says drop down and give me 20, then you just drop down and do 20 pushups. You know, and these days, like there's a lot of other things for kids to do. Right. And so you tell them to drop down and give you 20, they're liable to quit, you know, or they're liable to say what the main question is why, you know? And, and, and so kids these days need to know why. To do anything, they need to know what good it serves, what purpose it serves. So that's a big thing that I always start with. Because like at this point, by the time some of these kids, you know, some of them have got, you know, they've already had some run-ins with law enforcement. They've already, So they're 17, 18 years old. They're stuck in a classroom for eight hours talking about similes and metaphors and thinking like, you know, whatever I do in my life, it probably ain't going to have nothing to do with figurative language. Right. Uh, So as an English teacher for kids like that, you know, I have to make them understand why. 
And so I push a lot of reading. We read a lot of, they like crime fiction. Uh, they like contemporary fiction. So we break out of that mold a lot. Um, and then I tell them why reading matters, you know, and the empathy that it can stoke and the, the things you can learn and the way that it's like a workout for your brain coming from an old quarterback and an old coach and how that can keep you sharp. And, and if you look at people who are managers or leaders or people who have good lives, and if that's what you want for your life, you know, I guarantee you those people got a book on their nightstand. So cultivating a love of language and how to read, you know, that's what you're going for. I like that. All right. Awesome. All right. Well, if you are familiar with the show, then you know this sounder, which you know it means time for rapid fire questions. All right. You and the family are getting away for a vacation. Good for you. What is the music y'all going to be listening to en route? Bob Marley and Jimmy Buffett. Oh, sweetness. Nice. Do you have, side note, it's a B, it's a bonus. Do you have any, do you have a favorite Bob Marley album? Uh, well, like le the legend album, you know, just the, like the greatest hits is the one yeah. that you can go with. Yeah. You can never go wrong with Bob Marley. You all, it always makes you feel good, doesn't it? Yeah. And you listen to it so many times, you know, yeah. just the whole vibe. Yeah. All right. Speaking of which. What are some of the books you're going to be catching up on once you land and relax? Ooh, and you, uh, you, you I'm, it's a big one to put you on the spot because you got a couple of pals in the biz. But let's just say one or two that you'd go, man, here's here's one on my TBR list that I really want to dig into. So books I haven't read yet. Yeah. So, and it, it could be any it could, doesn't have to be fiction, fiction. It could be nonfiction. It could be whatever. You want. So right now I've got a book called The Resurrectionist that I'm just about to just crack open. It's about Matthew Quinn. It was published like almost 10 years ago. Uh, but I was in Jackson, Mississippi at Lemuria Bookstore on my way to the beach last week. Um, and the, the guy there, John, that owns it, he put that one in my hand. Um, so I don't know much about it, but I know that that one's on there. And then Gabino Iglesias has a book coming out that I'm really excited about. Uh, the Devil Takes You Home. Wow. Uh, kind of like Barrio Noir horror stuff. Um, but yeah, man, I've read Dwyer Murphy has got a book that's like the like the coolest. It's called Honest Living. It's the closest thing to Elmore Leonard. And I'm a huge Elmore Leonard fan. This whole shelf has got all 42 Elmore Leonard books. I've read them all. Um, and An Honest Living comes out tomorrow. And it's just like night, early 2000s New York City painted like in the clearest like picture possible. Um, it's just great. And then man, probably the best book I've read this year. And a lot of people I think are thinking that same thing is five Decembers. You know, it won the Edgar for best novel, uh, James Kestrel and just epic. I can't even, there's no way to describe it. It's just like okay. World War II, you know, set in Hawaii slash Japan. And I'm not a historical fiction guy at all. And that book just gripped me. That's big praise. I have seen that cover uh, uh, from several people. All right, let's see. I suppose because I'm a content creator, one of my favorite questions is who I imagine would play a character. So with that in mind, if Hollywood were to put tough on the screen 
in your wildest dreams and you could have something to say about it, who would you like to see play Billy Lowe and his mentor, Trent Powers? Yeah, people have asked this before and somebody said Tom Holland, like, and I don't watch a lot of movies. Like, so I don't, I'm not really familiar with Tom. I think he was, he Spider-Man. Is that good question? I have no idea. But what I really think the way to make it work the best, and they did this with the movie Mud, um, that Matthew McConaughey movie. Matthew McConaughey, yeah. Written by an Arkansan dude, um, and then was shot in Southern Arkansas. And what they did for that was one of the, there's two main boys in that movie, and they just did like an open casting call. Like they needed a boy who was that like genuine, like the genuine artifact. And I think that's the way you'd have to do Billy. Like you'd have to find one. I don't think anybody in Hollywood is going to pull off that sort of deal. Trent, I don't know. There's a lot of people that could do Trent probably, but I hadn't really thought about that. (laughs) All right. Final question. A magic genie, we're going to call him Frank, appears from nowhere to grant you one wish, which is a choice between becoming the next Tom Brady, I hope that's a compliment, or the next Ace Atkins. Which would you choose? Man, I'd take Ace any day. Yeah. Yeah. Good choice. Well, you've been, you've been down one road, so yeah. and you're on the new road, and you seem to be doing mighty fine from where this guy's sitting. Thanks, man. Folks, if you'd like to learn more, visit EliCraner.com and follow him on Twitter at Eli Craner. Eli, this has been totally, totally nice. Yeah, really great. Enjoyed the heck out of it. You seem like that kind of guy that if I have rolled up on your backyard and I said, hey, listen, I got a cold six-pack and that little uh, boat of yours right there looks pretty good right now, we could probably carve out half an afternoon or more and as long as I've got five, as long as I've got five of these unlined yellow pages done, then we're good to go. Unlined? Is that what you said? Yeah, that's an Elmore Leonard deal, uh, and this. So, V seven, uh, Pilot V seven pins, and then yeah, these they make these pads. You have to kind of special order them, but they don't have, they don't have any lines. And, I like that. And Bradbury. Also, I think it's like the epigraph to Fahrenheit 451. It's like if they give you lined paper, you know, turn it sideways and write, you know, just this idea that like you're not going to be constrained by 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 the man. I might steal that from you. I like that. I'll still go back to the computer, especially if like I really know what's going on and I really know like what's going to happen in the scene and it's a fast scene, then it's better. But on days where... You know, you're just still feeling your way through it. Scratch it out. Yeah, and you're still trying to debate, okay, I only got six of these darts, so. uh, (laughs) Waiting for a bullseye. That's right, baby. And how many have you hit lately? Well, I did. I did hit one this morning while the the kids kids were watching. Before they got sent off to grandma's. That's so good when the kids are watching and it's not, there's no trick. It's just look, that's what daddy does because daddy's a rock star. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right, dude. Well, listen, Joe, I'm going to uh, send you on your way. You've been very gracious with your time. I appreciate it. I'm glad we finally worked all our scheduling out. Yeah. This was really good. Really good. Doesn't that guy make you feel like you could just sit and talk to him forever? That easygoing, laid-back, southern demeanor. I love it. I think that's why we got along so well. Eli Craner, Don't Know Tough. Superb, superb debut. 
This next guest on next week's show, or the next show, which is Thursday, this gal I've had on the show twice before, one of my favorite people in the world. She is monumentally talented. She's super sweet. She's super smart. This has been a while in the making. Heat 2, co-authored with Michael Mann, the director. Heat 2 and Meg Gardner is coming to the Thriller Zone. Baby, you want to get your front row seat primed and ready because this is going to be one of those shows you'll be talking about for a long time. So please do me a favor and pull up a chair. Thursday, 8-11, Meg Gardner. The book again, Heat 2 with Michael Mann. We tried to get him on the show. He is busy making another film, but we'll talk about that later. And just one more thing before I go. Do me a favor, would you? Stop by any one of the places where you leave reviews. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, uh, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, even thethrillerzone.com. Leave us a review. Five star is super nice. Four star is good too. We just love to hear from you and see how you're enjoying the show. And if you want to drop us an email at thethrillerzone at gmail.com, we would love to hear from you. I'm David Temple, your host. I'll see you next time for another exciting edition of The Thriller Zone.